The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. I just need, I need a little time to get myself situated, so um, it's good for you guys to stretch, talk to each other. So it feels like the Olympics in here with all these flags, right? I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm actually kind of excited that the Olympics are over so I can have my life back. Um, I got home on Monday night and I kind of sat on the couch and I was like, well, now what do I do? Right? Every night, that's what I would do. I'd come home and I'd watch the Olympics. Uh, watch the Olympics. Um, did any of you actually go up to Vancouver? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Olympic fans in here. Um, Becky and I went up, last weekend was our birthdays, and so we went up um, to Vancouver to the Olympics, and we have some pictures for you. Um, there we are in front of the cauldron with that really aesthetically pleasing, very Olympic-looking cycling fencing around it. I thought that added to the Olympic flame. And then we stayed with a friend of mine who lives up there, um, and she's married to a German, Frank. Um, that's him on his bike with his flag. So we kind of pretended we were German tourists throughout the, instead of USA so people wouldn't yell at us. Just Germans dress better. I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know if I, offend, if I offended Germans, but whatever. So we were with Frank, and so we rooted for Deutschland um, the whole time. And that's the hockey game we went to. It was actually Germany versus Belarus. So... It's pretty exciting. Um, I love the Olympic Games. I don't know about you guys, but um, one of the things I would do besides watching the Olympics every night is I would watch Stephen Colbert and his coverage or his Vancouverage of the Olympic Games, so to speak. And one thing about Stephen Colbert is he likes to share strong opinions that he has with everyone. Um, and he expects everyone to share his opinions. And so I just have a short clip of him um, trying to talk to the U.S. speed skating team um, because he actually sponsored them. So here he is persuading the speed skating team. So take a look. That's Stephen Colbert trying to promote his opinions and get people behind him. And we're going to talk about opinions, sharing our opinions with other people, trying to persuade other people tonight as we look at the book of Romans. But before we get into that, I want to give a little bit of review. This quarter, there's only two weeks left, which is kind of crazy. Two weeks. Whoa, I know. Pretty exciting. Um, Not that you can tell looking in the quad, the cherry blossoms are out. It's weird. Uh, Because usually that happens over spring break. I don't know if you realize that. So there's something crazy going on. But anyways, there are two weeks left in the quarter, contrary to the blossoms that are out, but um, we have been going through the book of Romans during um, this quarter, and since January, and as you know, this is a book written from the Apostle Paul, it's actually a letter written to the church in Rome, um, this newly formed church in Rome, and in writing this book, or this letter that Paul writes, he's actually writing to two separate groups of Christians. Um, There were Jewish Christians, and there were Gentile Christians, which is essentially non-Jews, basically. Um, And the Jewish Christians were ethnically and culturally Jews, and they met in their own house churches. And the Gentile Christians were ethnically and culturally Roman slash pagan. And many of them were um, former slaves. So he's writing this letter to these two groups of Christians in Rome. And um, he is communicating, Paul is communicating over and over again in Romans, that God's salvation is through grace alone. 
It's not through a particular race of people, and it's not through um, activities that you can do to achieve righteousness through following the law. It's simply through God's grace. And that grace is something that is for everyone. Everybody's in the same boat, and everyone needs the umbrella of grace. We've actually been using the image of an umbrella with Jesus Christ as the center. That umbrella of grace is something that everybody needs. And Paul is writing in Romans, the Jewish Christians need it, just like the Gentile Christians. And what it provides is actually freedom that's found in Christ. So that's the first 13 chapters of Romans um, in a nutshell. It kind of makes you wonder... What do we talk about for eight weeks? Jane just summed it up in like three sentences. I know, there's a lot of other stuff kind of thrown in there, but that's basically what the book of Romans has set up to this point. Now, I would contend, although I'm sure there are probably some biblical scholars out there smarter than myself. I know, you're like, no possible way. I, I get it, I get it. But I would say that everything that Paul has been saying in Romans up to this point, everything in these previous 13 chapters was building up to chapter 14. Chapter 14 is where it's at. <laughs> I made a scientific graph for all of you mathematical engineers out there. Um, I have an, a logarithm that I came up with. So basically, on the x-axis, or the y-axis, I don't even know which is which, um, <laughs> we have grace in fluid ounces, and then as the Ro- chapter of Romans increases, the grace increases um, off the charts. And here we are at the very tippy-top um, In chapter 14, yeah, so I I knew that you guys would appreciate this visual. There's really no off on the genius switch when it comes to me. So I wanted you guys to be able to see this is what's been happening. And we need to get excited. And I mean, like, Chris T. Sort, 12 exclamation points in an email, excited. Because we are getting to the very, very practical part of Romans. Chapter 14 is down and dirty 100%. Practical And everything that's come before in these previous 13 chapters, that we all need God's grace. We are all sinners. Um, We are all grafted into God's family. That we all need a relationship with God. All of that has been building up toward what we're going to look at in chapter 14. But before we get into the scripture, I want to stop a minute and just pray. Gracious God, we know that we come to you all on in the same place, that we are all sinners. And we know as well that we all have been offered your grace. God, I pray that tonight that you would be with us in this place. We could be reminded of your presence. That we would be overflowing with your grace, God. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Amen. All right, so a little bit of context, a little historical context for you um, The dissension that was happening between these two Christian communities were basically two main areas of dissension. They they just couldn't actually coexist with each other. And the first one had to do with the Jewish lifestyle. So most of these Jewish Christians were Jews before they became Christians. And so um, the way that they achieved their righteousness or their holiness towards God was actually in the way that they lived. And they did that through three main ways. The first one is a kosher diet. And a kosher doesn't just mean that you don't eat of the cloven-hooved animals and you don't eat shellfish. Um, There's way more to it than that. Um, It's also the way that the food is prepared. And so a Jewish person would have a hard time eating, would, would not eat meat unless a Jewish butcher prepared it. And so most of the Jewish Christians in Rome were vegetarians. So kosher diet was very important. 
The second thing was keeping a Sabbath, always trying to maintain a Sabbath. And then the third thing was ritual circumcision. I don't talk about what that is, but these three things are what set the Jewish Christians apart. It set them apart as God's chosen people, and many of them, even when they became Christians and they had this freedom in the gospel, they actually continued to maintain this lifestyle. And frankly, many of the Gentile Christians thought they were really weird. And I'm not making that up. A lot of the contemporary writing of the time, the the, um, Romans would reflect on how strange the the Jews were. And I think my New Testament professor actually said they thought they were weird. I don't think that's what, like the Greek or the Latin says, but anyways. So that's one main area of contention. And the second thing is that the Jews had spent their lives being judgmental. And I don't mean they're judgmental like, oh, looking down on everyone. But if you, if you look through the Old Testament, what the, what the Jewish people called out to God for was that God would bring God's judgment down on other people groups. God would bring God's judgment down on the Gentiles. So now Paul is saying throughout all of chapter 13, or up to chapter 13 of Romans, these people are on the same page as you are. I mean, that was completely foreign concept. So that was another area of dissension between these two groups that Paul is desperately trying to get to work together as he writes this letter. So let's take a look at um, Romans chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Accept those whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat everything, but another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. So here he's talking about the Jews. Their faith is weak, meaning that they haven't yet embraced the freedom from the lifestyle that they had been living. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted that person. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master they stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So he's also talking to the Jewish Christians, saying you can't judge the Gentile Christians because they don't live a kosher, clean lifestyle, according to what you say. Some consider one day more sacred than another. Others consider every day alike. Everyone should be fully convinced in their own mind. Those who regard one day as special do so to the Lord. Those who eat meat do so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And those who abstain do so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For we do not live to ourselves alone, and we do not die to ourselves alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Verse 12, so then we will all give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore... Let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Paul is reminding them that they're caught up in all the wrong things. What he calls in verse 1, disputable matters. We're all in need of the umbrella of God's grace. He says in verse 12, we will all be held accountable to God. Now, I'm going to be honest, I don't know about you guys, but this chapter in Romans is one of the most convicting chapters in Scripture for me. Because if I disagree with someone theologically about their, or their interpretation of Scripture or their biblical ethics, my first inclination is to figure out how I can prove to them that my convictions are the right convictions. 
that my convictions are the convictions of a faithful follower of Jesus. But what Paul is saying in this chapter and what he's been building to throughout Romans is a lot of the stuff in our faith doesn't really matter. It's disputable. And in some cases, God doesn't even really care. There's an old adage, maybe you've heard it before. It says, unity in the essentials, diversity in the non-essentials, and in everything, charity. And I would argue that there are really very few elements in our faith that require unity. That allows two people to stand together and say, yes, I'm a Christian and this person is a Christian too. And it's basically all the stuff that Paul has been saying up to this point in Romans, the first 13 chapters. We are all sinners. We're all saved by grace through the life, death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was and is God and will be with us through all eternity. And then there's for us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's pretty much it. Maybe there's a couple of other things. You know, the Ten Commandments is basically summed up what Jesus says with that one commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. Because most everything else can be argued all sorts of different ways with biblical arguments. But a lot of it is pretty subjective. And I know when it comes to our faith, that's really difficult for a lot of us to accept. There's probably people in here right now who completely disagree with me. But I would say when it comes to our faith, we really want specific rules. We want road signs that tell us what we're supposed to do. Road signs like this that say, stop, turn this way, go this speed. But frankly, we don't really get that a lot when it comes to our faith. Besides those things that I already mentioned, that kind of are the things that unite us as Christians. Really, the road sign that I think of is this one. I don't know if you've seen this before, but this is an actual road sign in Belgium. And it's like, what? So in Belgium, it rains and snows. And when it does, the red car and the black car go together down the tunnel. And there are bridges and cars and freeways. Okay, great. That makes total sense. I get it now. I know what I'm supposed to do, right? Let's think about our context for a minute. Let's fast forward 2,000 years. We don't argue about <clears throat> we don't argue about kosher food or Sabbath, but I think we can all agree, all agree there are several disputable matters in our faith. Things that people who are Christians actually disagree on, even though they share the same faith. Hundreds of them. What are some of those disputable matters? Call them out. Abortion. Yeah. Drinking. Dancing. Dancing. <laughs> Here you go. There'll be none of that. What are some other ones? Baptism, yeah. Infant baptism versus adult baptism. Communion. Communion. Women preaching. Yep, very disputable. <laughs> it is. It is. What's that? Drugs? Drugs. It's true. Christian scientists, they don't take any drugs whatsoever. 
Worship music, homosexuality, gay marriage. Yeah. Circumcision. Circumcision. That is definitely a disputable matter. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't really have to worry about it, but... Um, here's some other ones. Just, like, making a, a big... Li- you know, there's a ton of them. Capital punishment, war, evolution. Um, how far is too far in a physical relationship, Right? Whether you should send your kid to public school or Christian school or home school, birth control, um, divorce. Whether or not you should have an American flag in the church. Whether or not you should post the Ten Commandments in the public building. Speaking in tongues. I mean, we could go on and on. There are so many disputable matters. And here's the thing about all of those things that we just listed. I certainly, standing in front of you right now, I have convictions about all of those things. I could make biblically-based arguments supporting both sides of a lot of those things. But I would never preach to you from the pulpit and say that you have to believe a certain way about any of them if you're going to call yourself a Christian. And I would never go to a church where the preacher said, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be a Republican or a Democrat for that matter. I would never go somewhere where they said, well, if you're going to be a Christian parent, you have to send your child to a Christian school. Or there's one, one way to date people. And if you don't do that, then I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, of course, when we're trying to figure these things out, we should listen to our pastors, their opinions, our leaders, our mentors, people who work in ministry. Of course we should. But if there are just a few things that are essential to our unity in the faith, how do we figure out what our convictions are? What are we supposed to do? In verse 5, Paul says, All should be fully convinced in their own mind. Fully convinced. Now, if you think that you're convinced about a disputable matter, have you brought that to God? Have you wrestled with it? Have you read about it? Have you looked at scripture about it? Have you read opposing viewpoints about it? Have you talked to people who know more about it than you? Who Have you prayed about it, agonized over it? Or are you just kind of waiting for your church or your pastor or your friend to tell you what you're supposed to believe? Give you a road sign. I'm going to tell you, when I was 20 and I was sitting where you guys are today at the inn, I was convinced, I was fully convicted that women should not be in leadership in the church. That's the way I was raised. I had biblical arguments to back back myself up. That is what I thought when I was in college. And then I had a couple of experiences and conversations that made me question that assumption that I'd always had. And so I started to dig. started to have conversations. I prayed about it. I agonized over it. I brought it to God. I talked to people about it, and then I prayed about it some more. And then 10 years later, I came to a place where I thought, you know what? That conviction has changed. Obviously, I'm standing in front of you right now preaching. (laughs) But it took patience. It took discernment. It took hard work and diligence, and it was an agonizing process to really kind of come to that place that that was the conviction that I had. But Paul is telling the Christians in Rome, once you know your convictions, it is not your role to go out and make sure that everyone follows your particular belief system. 
Instead, in this chapter, he's telling the Jew and the Gentile, now that you've got it figured out for yourself, what you need is tolerance for one another. More than tolerance, you need to love one another. Consider what your brother or your sister needs in order for you to help strengthen their faith. Now, I know tolerance is an incredibly loaded word in this era of ultra-PC-ness that we live in, but it doesn't mean that you don't have your own convictions. It doesn't mean that you're wishy-washy, like, well, you know, go with the flow, whatever works. It means you don't impose your own convictions that you have discovered in your freedom with, with Christ on other people. Instead, we should be searching for how we can actually strengthen our brother and sister in their faith journey. Wisdom is a huge part of our gospel transformation. Listen to the rest of this chapter. And as you do, I want you to think about how your own convictions may have helped or hindered someone else in their faith. Starting at verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. That's huge for Paul to say. He was a Pharisee. He lived his whole life only being clean, eating clean things. And now he's saying nothing is unclean. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it's unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother or sister for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Causing one another to stumble, that's kind of where having our convictions figured out gets a little bit more difficult, more confusing. It's easier to just figure out what we believe and then just not falter from it, right? The problem is by doing so, we can easily cause our brother or a sister to stumble. A big place this comes up, I think, for college students is in drinking. Let's say I have no problem with drinking, okay? Um, I'm of the legal drinking age, and my conviction is that I can imbibe one or two drinks without getting drunk, so it's not an issue for me. But then I'm going to a party with a friend of mine, and she's the kind of person that says, we are so going to party on the way there. And she's having a hard time not engaging in your run-of-the-mill fraternal hedonism, as Ryan would call it, to a dangerous level. Am I going to drink in that context? What does Paul say in verse 19? He says, mutual edification. Do what will bring mutual edification. I'm not going to drink in front of an alcoholic if it's going to be a stumbling block for that person. 
And now, in the same way, if I have a friend who's really close to committing their life to Christ, but they're just hung up on how legalistic Christians seem to be, always focusing on rules, you can't drink because then you won't be godly. Well, I'm going to take that person out and I'm going to buy them a drink and I'm going to drink with them. Because I want them to see Christians aren't necessarily all about rules and legalism. Or a physical relationship. Let's say you're in a relationship and you're, you, don't have, you don't struggle physically, but your boyfriend or girlfriend, if you get a little bit too physical, it's a struggle for them. After the movie is over, the video is over, um, you, you think it would be fun to, you know, maybe stay a while and kiss. or Do you call it making out? I don't even know what it's called anymore. <laughs> making out with one another? Hooking up? I don't know. Oh, wrong. Sorry. Totally wrong. Wrong context. But the person you're with has a hard time with it. Even though you don't have a problem with it, the best thing to do is probably get up and leave. There are times when even our own convictions need to be put on the back burner for the upbuilding of our brother or our sister. There isn't a blanket answer for every situation. The one thing that has to be in every circumstance is love. And it has to come from relationship. I was at this conference one time and I was talking to a friend of mine about my decision to go to seminary and go into ministry. And this, this guy I didn't even know comes up to me and starts telling me about how I cannot be a woman in ministry because it's against the Bible. And we engaged in this conversation for two hours. It wasn't, it wasn't an argument. I would call it a lively discussion. Uh, and... and you know what I was thinking during the time that we were talking? I wasn't thinking like, yeah, I nailed him on that one. Yeah. Or like, oh, he's right, I haven't really thought about that. What I was thinking the whole time was, dude, you don't even know me. You know nothing about me. Mike Gaffney used to be the senior director here um, at the Inn, and we bring him up a lot. He obviously had an impact. But one of his favorite things to say one of his favorite compliments was to say, you know what I like about you? You have opinions, but you're not opinionated. You have opinions, but you're not opinionated. Unlike Stephen Colbert, who has very strong opinions and is very opinionated. And frankly, when, when you're trying to persuade someone to believe everything exactly the way that you believe, I wonder how secure you are in what you believe. What we have to remember is the gospel is about freedom. And we're doing something to that freedom when we're saying our convictions have to be imposed on everybody else. Because you guys, what Paul is talking about in chapter 14 of Romans, this is huge. This is big time stuff. The heart of what he's talking about is he wants the Jews and the Gentiles and us to live together in unity. He didn't want their ethnic or their cultural backgrounds to get in the way of their ability to actually worship God together. For Paul, the salvation that he's talked about in these first 13 chapters, it doesn't make any difference for our individual grace, our individual relationship with God, if we are unable to worship with our brothers and sisters in unity together. The whole point of the gospel is reconciliation. And if we can't be re reconciled to one another, then Paul's like, the gospel doesn't work. 
Community is so important. It's something that we value so highly at the inn, and diversity in community is important, too. We don't have to all think exactly the same way. What I see in American Christianity is these homogenous pockets of people who think and act and look and speak exactly the same way. And what we want is people to come together in community from different communities. My job here is to put together core groups, so I get to help kind of facilitate that community. And it's always interesting because we'll always have a few people kind of say, you know, I don't really, I don't really connect with my core group. I don't, we can't really relate to each other. You know, and as I'll, I'll be counseling them kind of through that, you know, but I don't want to say this, but I'll think in my head, awesome. How great is it that we can be with our brothers and sisters who are going to challenge us, who have different convictions than we do, who can push us and teach us and open our minds to things that we've never even thought before. Think about the church that you go to on Sunday. Is there diversity there? Are there people with gray hair where you worship? Are there people who are conservatives and liberals? Are there people from different economic situations? The thing is, all we need to know about every single person that we're worshiping next to is that they are saved by the same grace that we are saved by. That they know the one Lord Jesus Christ that we know in order for us to be in community together, glorifying God. When I hear about those folks going on deputation, I get really excited. And I kept thinking about deputation as I was preparing this talk um, tonight, and because it was deputation announcement night. And I also, I just was thinking about deputation, um, because one of the great parts about going on cross-cultural mission is not only that we get to go out and serve what God has called us to do, but also because we actually get to truly experience the unity in Christ that Paul is talking about in chapter 14, that people can worship together across ethnic lines, across cultural lines, across across language lines. That's a picture of me. A few years ago, I spent five months in Kenya, and um, I worked with women who, uh, they lived in Nairobi, and they lived in a slum there, and these women were single mothers who actually had um, spent time in prison for doing things like, Stealing food so their children could eat. Um, and these women were amazing. That woman, her name is Mercy. She, I, I loved Mercy. I look kind of like an idiot in that picture. Um, or as Chris would say, a massive tool. But I'm, I'm trying to get Mercy to smile because Kenya's not typically smiling pictures. But anyway, so that's Mercy. And then her son um, is Mikey. He's the one on the left in the green shirt. And I have this huge bandage on my hand because I actually had surgery while I was in Nairobi. That's a whole nother story. Crazy. Oh, there's no parents here still thinking about deputation. It was great. Like no worries about anything like that. But anyways, um, the thing that happened in Kenya is, um, at first of all, I was like, Oh, I'm this, you know, rich white American. How am I going to minister to these women who, I live in the slums. I mean, they've spent time in prison. We have nothing in common. And I got to know Mercy a little bit, and twice a week we would actually worship um, all these women together. And as you can imagine, it was kind of like a pretty exciting, raucous worship experience. There was drumming, and there was dancing, and they were worshiping God. And they would worship in Swahili and in their tribal languages, and it was pretty great. And I would stand in the back next to Mercy, being very still and very white. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'd clap and, and bob my head, but um, it was great to be able to watch them worship. And one day, Mercy actually takes this um, tambourine, and she shoves it in my hand. 
now I'd start kind of slow. And, and um, as the weeks went on, it became one of the most amazing, intimate experiences I have ever had with God. I didn't even know the words I was singing. But I was worshiping like nothing I have ever experienced. And I remember looking over at Mercy and watching her laugh at my attempts to play the tambourine. And just thinking about how there's only one thing that actually brought us together. And that was our love of Jesus Christ. And I know that at some point in time I'm going to be able to worship with Mercy um, and I've never probably had a worship experience where I felt as connected and close to someone as I did with her. Instead of words of criticism and gossip and finger-pointing at those wrong Christians over there, what if we brought words of encouragement and hope that build community at every possible opportunity? What if we each sought God out on things to find our convictions through prayer and scripture reading and talking to other people instead of waiting for people to tell us what to believe? What if we were people who had opinions but weren't opinionated? What if when we came alongside a brother or sister in Christ to walk with them in their faith journey, we walked according to their pace instead of our own? What if we were able to say, Let's get rid of the differences that keep us separated. Let's forget about the judgment and simply, with one voice, worship our Savior, Jesus Christ, together. United by the grace that we all share. I'm going to close with this verse that Paul uses to sum up this section of Romans. Chapter 15. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus so that together you may with one voice glorify our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Gracious God, we are all sinners before you. We are all people saved by grace. And we are all people that are confused when it comes to how do we live out our faith every day. But God, we know in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of being overwhelmed with what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ, we know that it is you who will lead us, you who will guide us, you who goes before us as we consider how we can continue to connect with one another in community, how we can love one another Not be stumbling blocks, but be mutual encouragers of one another in our faith journey. God, we thank you that all of this is possible because of you. In your holy name, amen.